Good morning, everyone. Do you remember restaurants? Yeah, those places we used to go where you could like sit down at a table and someone else would prepare a meal for you at your request and serve it to you. And then they'd refill your glass if you got thirsty and you didn't have to do the dishes afterwards. What a concept. And there were like people in the back with a whole kitchen with, you know, ovens and freezers and refrigerators and they do all the cooking. I mean, I miss that. You know, we've got to get back to that, right? Because usually back in the kitchen, there's at least one person who is called the chef. And at fancy restaurants, the chef would often be known for what is called their signature dish. A signature dish is some meal or recipe that really stands out, that's unique to that chef. Either something that they've created from scratch, or often a special twist on an old favorite food that, that others may then like to try and emulate. Like, like TV chef Gordon Ramsay. His signature dish is beef wellington. He's got a unique take on an old classic. It's what he's known for. Now he can cook a lot of other meals, but the beef wellington, that's what people remember and associate with him. That's his signature dish. When it comes to Jesus' teachings, I wonder if he has a signature dish. Is there one thing that he teaches, one passage from the Gospels, one story of his life that kind of stands head and shoulders above all the others? Maybe something like from the Sermon on the Mount, like the, the Beatitudes, you know, all those blessings. Or the Lord's Prayer, universally used as a guide for prayer by, by all Christians everywhere. Or how about his words about anxiety from Matthew chapter 6? Don't worry about tomorrow. Boy, those are so meaningful in these stressful times. Or maybe his great parables, you know, like the three he told as a cluster in, in Luke chapter 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the prodigal son. Those are so memorable. Or maybe, maybe it's his comforting words about what happens after we die from John 14, his promise to prepare a place for us where we'll be with him in eternity. Does Jesus have a signature dish? Well, the more I thought about it, the more passages I thought about I couldn't narrow it down to just one passage or saying or story that stands out above all others as Jesus' signature dish. There are so many powerful and poignant passages to choose from. But if I was forced to choose, if I had to pick one passage to be his signature dish, one of the top contenders would have to be our passage today from Luke chapter 4. Because it's his first public message recorded in Luke's gospel. And it actually sets the table for everything else he says and does throughout the rest of the Gospels. It's not as well known as those other passages that I mes mentioned. You probably can't recite it by heart, like some of those other verses. But it's very powerful. It's, a, it's the booster rocket that launches Jesus into his public ministry. And for that reason, we need to know it. The other reason we need to know this passage from Luke 4 is because we all need hope. We need hope. More than anything else, we need hope. And if you think the vaccine doses are in short supply, let me tell you, hope for a person's heart, that's in even greater demand. People are struggling with pandemic fatigue, emotionally worn out, just numb, tired of the routine, tired of the lack of meaningful contact. And that's in the church too. It's not just out there somewhere in the rest of the world. Christians are struggling with their sense of hope. I saw some research this week that said that last year when churches nationwide had to go to online worship and ministry, 
most congregations adapted fairly easily. People rallied. I, I think we, we included. People adapted. People hung in there together. In fact, people sort of like the novelty of being able to go to church in their jammies. Just kind of sit on your couch, eat your Fruit Loops and Pop-Tarts during the sermon. So attendance and giving, it all stayed pretty even. But since then, the novelty has worn off big time and people are fatigued. Get this, a new, newly released Barna study shows that nationally there's been a 48% decline in church people watching their church online. 48% of the people who started off watching their church regularly online back in March and April, they aren't watching any church services online anymore. I mean, nothing. Doesn't have anything to do with the quality of what's being presented over the internet. People have just grown tired of screens, and so they're opting out. They're not doing anything with their church. 48%. That's huge. They're not watching, and yet they are also not willing to return to in-person worship either. No wonder giving is down. Though folks are getting tired of screens, they are not so eager to gather together physically. People are not clamoring to get together in the church building, at least not yet. Maybe 10% are, but not the vast majority. So just reopening the churches for worship is not going to instantly bring people back. Not until folks feel safe. And rightly or wrongly, people do not feel safe or safe enough yet. And as to when that'll happen, that's anybody's guess. Many Christians are doing nothing for worship and fellowship, and so they're losing hope. And those who are hanging in there with their church, they're also feeling the strain. In Luke chapter 4 that I'm going to read in just a minute, Jesus uses an Old Testament passage as the basis for his first public message. It's Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is arguably one of the most hopeful passages in the entire Bible because it lays out a grand vision of God's ultimate kingdom and what that's going to look like. Isaiah 61 describes this future kingdom that will come because of God's anointed one. A place of wholeness and freedom, of comfort and peace, a place of justice and holiness and healing and joy. Now the Old Testament Hebrew word for anointed one is the word Messiah. The New Testament Greek word for anointed one is the word Christ. That's why we interchangeably refer to Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You knew that, right? His last name would have been Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph, like if you're Danish, the name Larson means son of Lars. Christ is his divine title. And Isaiah 61 describes the work of God's anointed, God's Messiah, God's Christ, who will bring about God's kingdom. We're going to use Isaiah 61 as the basis for all our messages during the season of Lent, all these weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday on Easter. And I really want you to spend some time in Isaiah 61 on your own, or maybe with the online Bible study that Nancy Riscala Hembry is going to be leading. I'm kind of old school, so I like to use paper. I'd encourage you to print out Isaiah 61 so you can read it and highlight it, underline it, make notes about it. Really get to know the depth of what it teaches about our hope in Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. If you don't have a Bible app, just go to the website BibleGateway.org and search for Isaiah 61 in whatever version of the Bible you like. I prefer the NIV, but you can choose from many different translations. And then just print it out and spend some time studying it because you need hope from God's Word. I need hope from God's Word. The people around you 
need hope from God's word. So let me just read Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, where Jesus uses Isaiah 61 as this launch pad for his ministry. He's just been baptized by John. He's just completed his 40 days in the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. You know, he just crushed that. Now he's ready to go public, and he's going to do it in his hometown of Nazareth. Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, and then he quotes from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Now, as there is so much background in the Old Testament about anointing that I'm barely going to be able to scratch the surface of what it meant for Jesus to say, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Being anointed with oil, it was a physical way to show a blessing of God's favor upon a person. Usually somebody really important like a king or a prophet or some other great leader, pouring expensive oil over someone's heads, that wasn't for everybody. The common Joe, the ordinary Jane, they didn't get the anointing. It was an honor reserved for sacred purposes, usually performed by a priest as God's representative. The oil represented the Holy Spirit. It meant that that person was anointed, not only blessed by God, but also that that person was set apart for some greater purpose, that they were specially chosen, specially qualified, divinely empowered by the Spirit, uniquely focused for God to use in some special way. And so the anointing is the symbolic expression of God's goodness and love, and that God has transmitted some of his special Holy Spirit power. He's transmitted some of that to the individual, a power that was to be used for God's glory. Think of King David when he wrote of his relationship with God as king over Israel. Psalm 23, one of my favorites. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The anointing is how God shows his favor to David, and David gives credit back to God for everything he did for his people. David trusted God like no king before him or after him. He knew that he could not rely on his own abilities, his own strengths, his own efforts to build this nation of Israel to defeat all the enemies and rule the land with justice and peace, he had to walk in the anointing of God's Spirit. That's what gave him the power to carry out his tasks. And David went on to become Israel's greatest king, not because he was so talented, but because he humbly cooperated with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Here's what God says about his anointing of David a little bit further on in Psalm 89, starting with verse 20. 
I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him. And though my, through my name his horn will be exalted, I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. Wow. Keep reading through Psalm 89 and it lists all these benefits of God's anointing. Supernatural power and strength, protection, a uh, victory over enemies, authority over nations, a close intimate relationship with the Father, a deep sense of security within this covenant of God's grace, a promise for future peace. Now take David as the best human example of God's anointing and multiply that by about 10,000 times and you get the impact of what it meant for Jesus to claim God's anointing for himself in that little synagogue in Nazareth. For the people who were listening to Jesus in that synagogue in Nazareth, the passage from Isaiah, it was very familiar to them. It's one of the, their all-time favorites. It was one they all knew by heart because it summarized their shared hope for the future. You see, they were an oppressed people. On the one hand, the Roman military occupied Israel. On the other hand, all their age-old enemies are still in their surrounding lands, were still nipping at their heels, still encroaching on their territory, causing trouble. And so things were unstable and volatile and very, very uncertain. And so they looked to God's promises as their security. And they loved Isaiah 61 because it gave them the sense of comfort. It was something they could cling to to get them through the rough times. When God's anointed came on the scene, everything is going to be made right. There's a new sheriff in town, and we, when he comes, he's going to clean up this mess. So when Jesus used Isaiah 61 to describe himself, they were absolutely blindsided. They were not prepared to hear what he had to say. Plus, remember how I said sometimes for a signature dish, a chef puts a new twist on an old favorite? Well, Jesus actually puts a, a subtle twist on the original Isaiah passage that shocks them. And we're going to talk about that little twist next week. Now, biblical scholar Ken Bailey, who spent his whole life in Israel and Palestine studying their, their current and ancient cultures, he wrote this great, great book about uh, uh, Jesus called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And this is what he says about this particular passage. Jesus began with the bold words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a clear reference to his baptism and stated that he was, anoint he was the anointed one promised in the text. This left his audience with two alternatives. Either Jesus was indeed the anointed one of God and should be followed, or he was an arrogant, presumptuous, and perhaps dangerous young man who must be silenced. There's little ground between the two options. His opening sentence was like a lightning bolt. He announced the dawning of the messianic age as an event that was taking place in him right before their eyes. Well, what's all this mean for you and me? Here's what I want you to take away this morning. We talked about how the word Christ in the Greek New Testament, it's the, it's the word for anointed one. The word Christian was first used to describe the followers of Jesus in the city of Antioch, which is in northern Syria today. It was originally meant as an insult, but the followers of Jesus liked it and kept it because, because of what it meant. 
The word Christian literally means little Christ, little Christ. Or more importantly and more accurately for us today, little anointed one. When you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord, your Messiah, your Christ, you become a little anointed one. In the Old Testament, I said the anointing of God was given only to a select few. But now because of Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that anointed Jesus at his baptism is given to you and to every believer. We are all given the same anointing by the same Holy Spirit who comes to live in our souls in the same way the Spirit indwelled Jesus. You, if you're a Christian, you are a little anointed one, set apart, chosen by God, empowered by the same Spirit to be all that God wants you to be and to do all that God wants you to do. The anointing that used to belong only to kings and prophets and priests is now graciously given to all who come to Jesus. The anointing of God's Spirit is not just for some spiritual elite, not for a select few. God's anointing is for the whole body of Christ, and that includes you. You are numbered among God's chosen people, and he has anointed your ministry in his name. That means this hope thing that Jesus has for the world, you're part of it. Not just on the receiving end. You are part of bringing it. You're not just a passive recipient of God's grace. You, as a little anointed one, as a Christian, you're now part of the distribution process of God's grace to others. The full title for our Lenten message series is Up From the Ashes, How Jesus Brings Hope and You Can Too. Don't forget that last part. You are anointed by God to be a hope bringer in Jesus' name. You are his hands and feet in this world to do his will. You are the light that he sends into dark places. You are the one who brings the good news of the gospel to those in spiritual poverty. You are his healing hands, the one who sets others free, the one who represents Jesus to this fractured world. You, if you're a Christian, you're a little anointed one. You have a job to do as one of Jesus's hope bringers. That means it's got to happen to you before it can happen through you. It's got to happen to you before it can happen through you. You have to know and experience the hope of God in your own heart so that you have something to share with others. You can't give away what you do not possess. You can't give away what you do not possess. So these first weeks of Lent, I really want you to reflect on where you are. Is the hope of Jesus alive in your life? Do you sense the Holy Spirit working in your heart? Do you feel the tug, the pull of the Spirit in any new directions? Do you, do you recognize God's calling on your life to be a little anointed one in your various spheres of influence? In all the ways that you bump into other people, are you a bringer of God's hope? Do you have a sense of security because you know you're within God's covenant circle of grace? Are you ready to explore what it means to be part of the mission of God's anointed one? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon you because the Lord has anointed you to bring his good news. Friends, that is how hope begins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this amazing and powerful passage that just cracks open this whole idea of hope and being the bringer of hope as God's anointed one. We thank you that Jesus is the ultimate one who will bring your kingdom in its fullness. But the kingdom has already started. It's already here, not in its fullness yet. It's already here, Lord, and you've graciously invited us to be the little anointed ones who help bring the good news to the poor and to light to the blind and freedom to the captive.
and all the other things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Lord, help us not to shirk away from this, this tremendous privilege and responsibility of being a little Christ, anointed by the same powerful Holy Spirit. Lord, let us rise to that occasion. Let us let that hope happen in our hearts, Lord, so that it can happen through us to others. Let us possess it so that we have something that we can give away. And we ask this in Jesus' name.